So, I know you are all here to listen to John and Marlene and not to my revolutionary dreams. <laughs> so, and without further ado, I will go on and introduce, please take seat. Uh, go on and introduce our illustrious opening lecture conversation. It is a great honor, and when I say great honor, the words are actually too light to express the pleasure and, uh, and uh, uh, gratitude of, by, of 154 to have these two speakers here today. And I welcome two key figures of the Black Arts Movement to open the conversation series. And here I have to confide something to you. Please keep it to yourself, don't tell anyone. I honestly became a curator because I am a natural born groupie <laughs> and advocate. I am enthralled in front of work that touches me, that moves me, and especially work that makes me think. Jonah Comfra has built such a body of work. So when he showed up at Raw Material Company in Dakar a few months ago, as a real groupie, I felt like God was visiting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think I don't really have to introduce John anymore to, the, to a London audience, but still, for those who haven't met God yet, John is an artist and filmmaker who lives and works in London. And he's well known for his work with the London-based media workshop Black Audio Film Collective, which he co-founded in 1982. He has worked primarily within the independent film and television production companies, and his work has been widely shown in museums and galleries internationally. I will not read where. <laughs> in preparation of this day, a certain name kept popping up. I know that in every movement, there are high priestesses <laughs> that gather the energy and most importantly, keep a hold of legacies. Marlene is one of those. She is an artist and curator, works under the title The Room Next to Mine. She co-founded the Black Art Group Research Project organizing the 2012 Reframing Moment Conference to commem oh my God, English. commemorate 30 years since the first National Black Arts Convention. She has been director of the Black Art Gallery in London and West Midlands Minority Arts Service, Birmingham, and was a member of the Black Art Group. I don't say more than that. I know we will have a very exciting talk. And uh, I leave the floor to you. Very, really, thank you very much for being here, John and Marlene, for opening this conversation series. Thank you. Thank you everybody for coming. Um, today, what we're going to do is start off, I think, with a, a conversation about the Black Art Group, 
I'm going to show a few images of the Black Art Group's work because the work of the early 80s, I think, is work that isn't seen very often. So I want to kind of set that context um, before we start talking um, in, in, in greater depth with John. Um, and today we're going to try and have a conversation um, that is um, informed really by, by John's practice and we'll kind of bounce back and forth in terms of our um, thoughts and reflections upon the movement that, that, that Koyo has referred to. And in particular, we've been asked to, to think about that movement in terms of legacy and in terms of what it means today um, as one aspect of today's discussion, but also to think about it in terms of the relationship between um, what was happening uh, in the UK with black artists in the 80s and uh, the, the notion of diaspora. Um, so I'm going to start by showing you <coughs> hope. Uh, right, I'm going to just move slightly to the side so I can... Right, you'll have to forgive me if I don't really talk to these images a great deal. Uh, and the reason I'm not going to do that is not because I don't want to talk about the images, but because I'm, I'm very conscious that there's quite a lot of material to get through. Um, but I wanted to start with this image because it is often referred to, um, and certainly has been referred to by Rashid Areen, as the first piece of black art. Uh, and when Rashid Areen um, speaks of black art, or certainly when he did um, in the 80s, he was certainly of, a, of, a, of an opinion that, that black art was something that, was, that has a political uh, motivation uh, that is informed by an oppositional, taking an oppositional position to, um, to the mainstream. Um, uh, I'm already talking about this more than I intended to. So, I can't resist. So this piece of work, if you don't know, it is called The Destruction of the National Front. And it was made in 1979 to 80, to 1980, and it's by Eddie Chambers. I should have said before I started showing these slides that the Black Art Group, just to kind of, again, put that into context, is a group that, um, of, of students. Um, in 1979, Eddie Chambers met Keith Piper at, on their foundation course at Lanchester Polytechnic, which is now Coventry University. Uh, the first exhibition by the group of, of young people that would be later known as the Black Art Group was held in Wolverhampton in 1981. And this would have been um, one of the pieces that was shown there. Uh, this is a piece called How Much Longer You Bastards uh, by Eddie Chambers. Uh, we can't really see the detail on this, unfortunately. Um, but I'll come, this image recurs and recurs. There is an image that is reproduced up here on the left-hand side of this, this poster, which is an image from the Soweto um, um, massacre. Uh, and it, I mean, it's a very familiar image, and it's one that recurs often in, 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 in work that was produced at this time. And we'll see it again. Claudette Johnson, 
uh, this is a piece of work from 1983 and I very purposefully I found it really difficult to select images for today because there is a range of work but I very purposefully have chosen pieces that are from the early 80s because that group uh, the Black Art group really existed from 79 when Keith and Eddie met on foundation up until about 84 which would have been the last exhibition so we're talking about very early 80s and this is a piece from 1983 uh, as is this piece uh, and often with Claudette's work, the work is untitled. I'm really sorry that I can't show you detail um, on this particular piece. Can we zoom in at all? No? No, we can't. Okay, so this is a piece by Keith Piper. This is 1982, I believe. Uh, and it is entitled 13 Dead. Uh, the piece was made in response to the Deptford um, um, fire where 13 young people were. were um, there was a birthday party, the house was set on fire and 13 young people lost their lives. Uh, and this is a piece that makes reference back to that, to that occurrence. Um, I can't read the text uh, and I'm not going to try and paraphrase it because I think that wouldn't do justice to the work, but it's a very poetic text that repeats itself 13 times with the images of each of the, the young people that have died. Um, and you know, it's, it's um, both doing homage to them and kind of calling for action. Horrible slide. I can't find any decent slides of this piece of work. Um, there are two images in this. It's a, a, trip, uh, a diptych. Um, and uh, a male and a female body. Uh, I think that you can possibly read the text on, on this piece. One of mine. Uh, this piece um, is actually called Good Housekeeping. It gets referred to as all kinds of titles, but this is Good Housekeeping. It was shown, and this is an installation shot from the ICA October 1985 and it makes reference back to Cherry Gross who had been shot um, at home. She was at home early one morning, opened the door to the police and, and was shot and uh, you know it, it was another moment of a, a kind of rallying point for, 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 for black people in the, the UK. Uh, and, and that piece makes reference to it. This is a, um, a shot from the studio, actually, in, in preparation for this piece doesn't exist anymore. Um, and this piece was made later, actually, this is 1986 or seven, and it's called uh, Do Please, A Happy Ending. Um, so that's me, uh, Donald Rodney. 
Uh, I mean, we could spend today just talking about this piece, let alone the body of work that is Donald Rodney's body of work. Um, these two pieces um, were made at a similar time in 1985-6. Um, they're called Britannia Hospital 2 and 3. Um, they are thankfully uh, part of the collection at uh, Sheffield Museums. Um, and this is an inst installation shot from an exhibition that happened at Sheffield Museums in 2011. Um, so, sorry, this one is Britannia Hospital 2, and this is the house that Jack built. And again, just very briefly, one of the, one of the many themes in, in Donald's work is that he would work into um, x-rays. So these, the images behind um, the, this figure and the images on the, onto which this um, main image is, 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 is painted are, are, are x-rays. Aha, Britannia 3. And, you know, there are, you know, this is a multi-layered piece of work with many, many art historical references. I think you can see the Frida Kahlo reference up here on the, on the, the left-hand side. There are references to what's happening within, in, in the news. There are references to the National Health Service uh, within this, this particular um, piece. And these are some stills from the retrospective of the Black Art Group that happened in Sheffield in 2011. Um, so I'm just going to quickly run through those. It's slightly out of focus, I think. Right, and then to finish my little, um, my archival moment, um, this is the handbill, it's an A4 handbill actually, um, that was produced in the summer of 1982 um, as, a, as a call for black art students across the UK to come to the first national convention of black art which was held in Wolverhampton uh, and that was the moment at which I first encountered God. Uh, <laughs> I like it, I like, I like this. Uh, so um, I'll just say a few, make a few brief remarks um, before before I come on to ask John um, in, before I come on to interrogate John about his work. Um, one of the things that I want to say and that I always say when I excuse me for moving my chair around yeah, um, that I always say when I'm presenting the work of the Black Art Group is that um, it was really important, really significant for me as a young. Uh, emerging artist, not even artist yet, but student, to meet a group of people in a, from a similar background with similar aims and objectives. And how, um, you know, what a magical moment it was to, to stumble across 
um, Keith, Donald, Eddie and Claudette. Uh, and so I first saw the work of the Black Art Group in June of 1982. The convention was October 1982 and it was at that seminal event that I met um, John Acomfra, Trevor Matheson, Eddie George and Lena Gopal. Uh, at that convention was also Rashid Areen was speaking, um, uh, Sonia Boyce was there, Lubaina uh, Himid was there. So there were, so it was a, it was a moment of a, a meeting of a number of artists and curators and thinkers that would go on to, to do important work and that were um, making things at the time. Um, I wanted to pause with this particular image and to, 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 to talk to, to John about that moment of meeting because, um, you know, when one looks back at these things, whether it's through um, examining the, I won't call it the archive, but the collection of, of, of stuff. Uh, there is or there can be a sort of nostalgia that can, can take, take hold uh, and one can see these moments of one's youth in, in a sort of rose-tinted way. But when I listened to the audio and I have spared you the experience of listening to the audio again. We, we did have a previous event at which I played John, his you know, 20 year old self speaking very articulately. Um, when I listened to the audio of the 1982 event, there are certain voices that come out of the, the machine and the hairs on the back of the neck still stand up when you hear those voices. And one of those is the voice of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, and at the time that, that this event happened, I had literally just started my foundation course. And myself and Donald, as the junior members of the group, uh, were assigned the job of, uh, we were you know, on the little table outside the, outside the conference and people were arriving. And so my recollection of the moment was, you know, the thrill of all these, all these black students arriving and wondering, wondering who they were, but also being very impressed, not just with John, but with the other members of Black Audio and how articulate they were. So it seemed to me then, John, that you came to that event with an already formulated philosophy, with an approach to work, and with you know, an approach to politics that seemed to me then at the time, really well formed. And when I listen back to the evidence, still today seems very well formed. So what was that philosophy and, and where did it come from? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think I know, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that I can fully answer that question. I mean, one way in which one could approach this is via biography. Hey man, <laughs> you okay? Um, Trevor, sitting behind Zach, 
I think was the one who showed me that I don't know where he got it from. And I, I remember him sort of coming up to where we, the squat we were in and he said, there's, there's some people trying to steal our shit, man. <laughs> Look at this. And I looked at it and I thought, ah, he's, he's partly right. Because <laughs> actually we were planning to call for precisely such an event. It seemed to us, you know, over a year after the most remarkable outpouring of anger and uh, brutality and political activities on the streets, I'm talking here about the riots of 81, it seemed the right time to both ask, ask the question, one, what should be the ethical relationship between us, those who had escaped the gulag of the street and made it into universities and art colleges and so on. What should our relationship be to that moment? So that was very much on our minds. And it seemed to me, because we had also met pretty much about the same time as Eddie and Keith and had decided to work together. Trevor and I met in our first year so that's either 79, 80 or 80, 81. I can't remember now, but you know, that period anyway. Um, and we had gone out and make, made images of, of the um, disturbances in London as a way of, I don't know, bearing witness, if you like. But it didn't seem enough. It seemed almost like a kind of escape from what our true uh, relation should be to that. Uh, and so the call was to partly work out whether anyone else had, had um, come up to the same sort of conclusions. And when we saw this, we realized that there were people out there who were thinking in the same way. Um, the second had to do with just how one should position the practice um, should it be a political project, a cultural project, an art project, all of which were spaces of operation that we felt sufficiently equipped to move into? Um, or can one talk about a form of realignment that brings these three spaces into some kind of conversation um, with each other? So that was very much on our mind when we came. And I think what you noticed was the earnestness the desire to, to answer those questions. We came with the questions, not answers. We came trying to find um, the questions. And I think by the time we left that conference, which is a remarkable conference, it really was, uh, you know, um, the moment when you suddenly thought, fuck me, we've come off age, you know? Um, everybody in that room probably had a similar kind of trajectory you know, I had dreamt in my room between 76 at home and 79 that one day I might try and do art history, uh, possibly at the Corto, that was my dream. And then I get to Portsmouth and I meet these guys and they say, well, actually you're repressing large parts of your character here because you seem to have read all this stuff. Why don't you consider something else, you know? My <laughs> history seems a bit limiting. And I think everyone had, everyone in that room 
uh, in the whole had broadly similar you know, responses, affective responses to that moment. I think we'd all come there in solitude. The sense was that you had uh, born a certain kind of uh, affliction, stigmata, on your own. Usually with embarrassment. Oh, yeah, I'll come for it. That boy, you want to study art? What's that? You know, everyone had that kind of thing, either in their family or amongst their friends. And then suddenly there we were. There was a group of 80 people from across the country. And they were all saying pretty much the same thing. We want a critical art practice. And the discussion then was which way should it go? So let me just show you something really quickly because I think it tells you where we thought it should go. <laughs> this is uh, from a tape slide series. It's our first work, first work of the Black Audio Collective. And it's in the Images of Nationality folder, yeah? Um, or it's just called Clip One, Images of Nationality Clip One. Just play us about a minute and a half of that. This is not going to work, is it? <laughs> I mean, once he's trying to find it, I mean, I, I will probably say this, and I'll stop when he starts uh, playing it. One of the things that people have asked me again, oh, okay. said the, the impossible fiction, by the way, it's being zoomed in, <laughs> you might not have got that. Um, I got into quite a lot of trouble at this conference because um, one of the things I was really keen on was for us to renegotiate this question of naming what we are. And quite a few people are there and they were saying, we're artists, you know, we're artists, we want to be artists. And I'm like, fuck that. We, you know, what is this term that you guys are so attached to? I mean, can we just work out what we want to do first <laughs> before we work out what to call it? So I had said, and Marlene played it to my embarrassment recently at some conference. Uh, I said, I don't care about art, but I care about um, process. And in a way, that's the process I was referring to. Because um, 
the two-part series was called Signs of Empire and Images of Nationality. And, and they were shown together as a season, what, a series called Expeditions. Um, the sequence there was about trying to find a range of overlap of concerns, interests, themes between um, material that we had culled from paintings, photographs uh, from that period, writings, you know, and as you chase these works, you realize that there were these similarities of concerns, sometimes formal. So there is uh, Queen Victoria whose photographs several times uh, throughout her 60 year reign. And one of the most beloved of uh, stagings was always with her and a figure of color, usually that Sikh man holding some emblem of his subservience, either a stick or uh, a vase, it's anything. Um, and then you go to the paintings of Victoria, lo and behold, there they were. The same primal scene had migrated from photography, um, the so-called real, uh, very effortlessly to the space of the symbolic. Uh, in painting. So the desire for uh, images of nationality was to try and pull together from a range of uh, disciplines, subject fields, uh, recurring motifs and, and icons and archetypes and so on, to see what they might say about difference and nationality. And the idea was that at the end of it, you can then decide whether there is art or not, but the job itself had to be done before you named it. The naming seemed to me to be put in the wrong place. Does that make any sense? Yes. <laughs> but you're not going to let me get away no, with it. Yeah. So um, I've heard you say about Black Audio Film Collective mm. um, that each of those words, each of the words mm -hmm. in that title are, were, were important um, or essential. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about what, what you meant by that. Um, and let me tell you what the second part is. Sure. And the second part of the question is, having said that, how does the transition from Black Audio Film Collective in 1982 mm -hmm. to smoking dogs in 1994. What does that say um, about what you make, why you make, and mm. per perhaps more importantly, the context in which you make your, okay. your art? Um. Well, the, the same uh, agnostic spirit that I thought, and I think most people in the group agreed with this, after much debate, I mean, we were, apart from anything, an argumentative bunch of, um, you know, young people, as you know, people usually are when they're developing. Um, but what we agreed was, after tortured and, protracted period of discussion, that the three areas of our formal interests 
whether they be political or cultural, should be in the name. And the final bit of the name, this is just all about naming ourselves, mm -hmm. the final bit of the name should be the one indisputable thing that we didn't have any disagreements over, which was that we were all black. <laughs> all the rest were subject to, to some debate. And I think the, the effort was, again, to see how the practice might bring these words, audio, film, collective together. How in the process of doing something, a version of becoming young and black could emerge. So it's a very um, innocent uh, gesture, but it was, it was taking almost wholly, a bit like your black art group name, mm -hmm. to mean something else. I mean, everywhere we went, people were like, whoa, these guys are militant because they're called black. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, immediately, in ways that we hadn't, we hadn't assumed. The second thing uh, which I think was important to stress is the, the, the importance of the sonic for us, right? Um, now, you know, moving image practice, there's this tendency, it's called moving image practice, this tendency to downplay the importance of the sonic. Um, almost as if as a way of knowing it's not important. Mm -hmm. But we had come from spaces which told you otherwise. And I just want to play you something. It's got two of my favourite images in the moment, so I'll just play... Ah, oh, where is it? It's from the Pablo folder, Squire. Um, whatever is in there, don't worry, you can't mess it up. Um, That one. More volume, yeah? Thank you. That's the, uh, that's the great Augustus Pablo, and a track's called King Toby Meets the Rockers Downtown. Now, between 72 and 76, if you were, oftentimes people talk about the importance of Marley's appearance for my generation on television on the old Grey Whistle Test in 73. But actually, that was just the beginning of a sonic experiment, which was taking place in clubs and blues dances across the country. 
Um, so imagine those two, they're images of two young black kids taken from the black house in 76, I think. People roughly that age, that's probably what I was, in these incredibly darkened spaces. Linton Kwesi Johnson's early work attests to this. It attests to what Stephen Feld called the acoustomologies of becoming, the way in which you get to know through sound. But what I want to suggest to you is that there's something even more profound than that. This isn't about knowing, this is about becoming. We came into being via the sonic. And Julian Henriquez's recent book, Sonic Bodies, for those of you who haven't seen it, is remarkable for that because it, it points to this question of the phenomenology of the sonic, the way in which sonic systems make, create economies by which bodies emerge, fully formed through the sonic. So we came to black audio with this legacy, quite literally. This is how we became black. <laughs> I'm, Do you know what I mean? I, want, I, I totally know what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, having, you know, because that's an experience, mm. uh, 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 a literal and um, um, physical mm. and psychological uh, experience that I absolutely, um, absolutely resonates with me. But I just want to tease out from what you were just saying about coming into being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This other question that we're, with, with, we're tasked with addressing today, which is around the notion of diaspora, mm. uh, around the notion of who we are. Mm. And um, to ask you to kind of just address that in terms sure. of your experience and, and the work, of, I, I think to, to kind of ground it more in the work rather mm. than in the in the, in the personal experience? You know, the, um, there's a film that's out, a young film made by two young Nigerian uh, writer and director team called Gone Too Far. It's cute, it's not great, but it's cute. Um, and it's, it's about, you know, like what seems to me now, because I've been living through it for four decades, the intra-ethnic fights, you know, between people of African descent, you know, Caribbean descent. The whole film's about that, you know, who's an Af and who's... Uh, cute, but, you know, it's not... Um, and one of the things that I try and tell my kids, you know, nieces and nephews, um, is to be attuned to the question of historicity on this, okay? Because they're grandmother, my mum, uh, uh, was here and met my father here in the 50s and then they went back to, uh, to Ghana to take part in what became Ghana's independence. Right? And when you think back now, um, you have to remember this not as simply an African moment but as a huge moment for the diaspora, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I want to play you something else because <laughs> this, this is also quite interesting. Uh, this is the great Lord Kitchener, 
for those of you into Calypso. Um, and when you're listening to it, just have a look at the image on screen and I'll tell you something about it. It's about Ghana's independence and it was released in 57. Yeah, just stop it, pause on the image. Okay. Because yeah, all of them are too long. <laughs> Otherwise we'd be here forever. Now, the guy there, that's Stuart Hall. The cultural critic Stuart Hall, okay? And that's 1958, Balliol, Oxford. You will notice that what he has on, those of you from Ghana, I notice one or two here, is a kente cloth. A kente is a very elaborate, uh, uh, hand-woven cloth, painstakingly put together, an expensive piece of cloth. So the fact that he has one on presupposes two things. One, that he knows a Ghanaian who has one to lend him. He's, play <laughs> He's playing Iago there, so... <laughs> but, but it's part of it, the, 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 the sartorial presence of the kente in that photograph speaks to a now forgotten history of that moment when the coming of independence to Ghana was not just of significance to Ghanaians but across the black world yeah um, which is why a calypso singer living in England producing material largely for the Caribbean would record a track on Ghana's independence, which will circulate across the Caribbean, some of it making its way to West Africa, and so on. It's the process uh, that Gilroy refers to uh, in his book on the Black Atlantic. That circulation of signs, traffic of ideas, musics, etc., etc., etc. And so I try and remind them that um, my kids. That it wasn't always, you know, as it is now. Yeah, postcode fights about whether you're Somali or not. <laughs> there was a moment when there was something slightly more utopian about, about black feeling. And uh, I want to play you one more thing uh, on this because I think it's also important. The question of historicity uh, comes about in another form. Because oftentimes when you say history, it's the Nine Muses folder, by the way, Squire. When you say uh, history, people think about processes and abstractions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, quite a few, a lot of times you can locate it in bodies, real bodies, who are agents for these transformations. Okay, um, the Nine Muses was part of a two-part thing that we made, uh, I made um, on the coming of diaspora, which used uh, the Homeric epic uh, and read it through 
a, a diasporic frame as a way of trying to tease out uh, how, how we became. So uh, this is almost the last chapter of it. And I just want to play you a section. Um, but I want to concentrate your reading of it and viewing of it on the two figures who would appear in it in a minute. Thank you. Uh, yes, as I said, the, the, this was uh, the Nine Muses was about the coming of dice. But the, but the sequence you just watched was part of trying to understand that process of arrival, what Naipaul calls the enigma of arrival. That moment when you arrive is one thing, and before your eyes you melt and become something else. So you arrive as a Legotian, uh, uh, an Ashanti, and before you realize it, you're becoming black or colored or Negro. And that process is twofold. It takes place, one, by you being told you are becoming this thing with a whole bunch of other people, yeah? People from Port of Spain, St. Anne, wherever parishes all across the Caribbean, you're becoming this thing together, but at the same time as you're becoming this thing, you're now effecting a new relation to another entity that until then, you hadn't really figured out of having a relation to Shin with, which is the raciological monolith of whiteness, right? And the sign, keep Britain white. It's a way in which the racial monolith announces your difference by simultaneously telling you you're not part of it, but that you then also belong with this whole group of other people. The two uh, figures there are more what I'm interested in for this discussion. Because far from being just an old man and a young figure thrown together, they are in the course of the program. And, but actually when you interrogate who they are, there's some real connections, and the connections between them tell you something about the making of Black Britain. It tells you something about how Africa came to be, and it tells you why we're even here having a conversation about African art. The man is Larry Constantine. Larry Constantine was a Trinidadian cricket player, a very great one, who moved to this country in the late 20s. And it's through Larry Constantine that CLR James, a great Pan-African slash Marxist makes it to this country in the 30s. Uh, sorry, 
mistake, 29. James spends time here and then goes off to America in the early 30s, 33, where he meets Nkrumah, soon to be, you know, the uh, Prime Minister of Ghana that Kitchener's talking about, and persuades Nkrumah that he should come to London to work with another figure called George Padmore to set up the Pan-African Bureau. Okay, so then Nkrumah, as a result of James, who had only got here because of Constantine, that guy, comes to England, starts working with this group that includes himself and Jomo Kenyatta and Padmore and James himself, that would then give impetus to the liberation movements across uh, Africa, uh, will inspire young Louis Nkosi, the South African writer there, to begin writing, have his work banned, run to this country to escape being banned in South Africa to meet Larry Constantine. Do you see what I mean? So it's in that space too that someone first raises, it's within this hub that someone first raises the spectre of an African art through Jomo Kenyatta's work Facing Mount Kenya. Because Facing Mount Kenya is the first time that I'm aware of inside this country that someone raises the question of us not only having political and ethical rights, but cultural ones too. And it's that debate around the question of our cultural patrimony that would lead many, many artists to take up the question of Africa and its culture. So you see, images sometimes are not quite as simple as they look. <laughs> I'm really conscious that we are sadly running, we're okay. running quite close to the edge on this. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, John, I'm going sure. to just look at the audience and get a guide as to whether we've got, whether we have got um, um, questions. And if we don't have questions, we'll, we'll continue to to, um, but we'll continue to, to talk. I'm not seeing, yes, I'm seeing one hand over here. Can I just ask that you just hold on until the microphone can get to down here? And that when you do speak, that you say your name before you, before you ask your question. Hello, my name is Zoe. Um, this has been fantastic. My question was mainly just to ask if you'd be able to pick up the second part of Marlene's earlier question about that transition from Black Audio Film Collective to Smoking Dogs that many of us know today. So to remind you, the second part, <laughs> I think the pertinent question, John, yeah, yeah. was the context, I think, within which you're making work so you you transitioned from black audio film collective to smoking dogs in the mm -hmm. mid 90s yeah uh, and so the question was what does does that that change that transition what does it say if anything about what you make mm -hmm. why you make and the context in which mm -hmm. you're making mm -hmm. I mean um, yeah <laughs> um, 
good questions. I don't, I'm not sure that we have the time to deal with it. <laughs> like, okay. uh, but, um, look, put, put it this way. I mean, when we were making Hansworth songs, uh, which was first and foremost a research-based project, that's what it started off as. It was not to make an artwork or film. I didn't care about those questions. I mean, you know, I have to now, but I didn't then. It wasn't, it wasn't interesting. Um, um, of course, in our mind, we were the beginnings of something. Yeah. Black collective practice, you know, infused by theory, etc., etc. Et Actually, now, what's also interesting is that, that we may well have been the end or the beginning of an end of something. Um, and in order to kind of get that, you need to go really to, to the war. I mean, you know, if you look at the making of images uh, immediately after the Second World War, across the planet, um, but, but the figures who dramatized this difference most were in Italy. So if you look at Rossellini's work, Bicycle, sorry, Rome, Open City, Stromboli. If you look at De Sica's work, Bicycle Thieves and so on, there was this energy that came out of the sense that there's something out there mm -hmm. called the real. <laughs> and you were going to embrace it in its manifold complexity. You were going to make sense of it. But the, the thing you were going to do more than anything was to be faithful to it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I don't think that image makers think in quite the same way about the real now. And that process of renegotiating our relationship to the image uh, had, was underway by the time we made hands of songs. Um, so, on a kind of epistemic level, we had to change how we worked. Um, I mean, here's the paradox. Now, uh, there's a range of work being done by people, uh, Pedro Costa here, uh, Chai Min Yang there, uh, you know, uh, a picture upon that, you know, would have been almost wholly considered part of cinema mm -hmm. 25 years ago, that have now migrated elsewhere uh, and are welcomed elsewhere, which suggests two things. One is a process of disavowal on the part of cinema for what it considers to be its uh, space. Mm -hmm. um, and the opening of other discursive spaces in which the work of Joe and Chamiyang and Pedro Costa and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, the list is endless, can exist in. We could call it a gallery if you like, you can call it uh, the art world, but essentially the other space from cinema. Um, and the same is happening with television, so there are people you know, I'm curating a show for the Hayward next year at the moment, looking at the British art collection. And, you know, the films in it, made from the 60s and 70s, that were made for television, which will not get a look in. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, 
even the very subject matters would be enough to turn most people who work in television's nose uh, up. You know, so there were transformations afoot, and by the mid-90s, you couldn't ignore them anymore, uh, which suggested that we needed to, 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 to change the practice. We needed to... Um, so so did, did that transition... Was the, the transition was about a change in practice rather than a change in naming. Interesting. So that I mean that's yeah. the hub for me. That's the that's the hub of my my question is about okay. what changes internally and what changes contextually in terms of what's out there. I think part of it is about the reordering of things. I mean, one of the things people would use routinely to insult black audio. Younger filmmakers, for instance, would say, oh, they're just gallery filmmakers. This was seen as an insult in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, uh, and we perceived it as such because <laughs> we defended ourselves violently against it. We're not just gallery filmmakers, we do other things, which is true. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also true to say that from the beginning, from 83 onwards, the work had always circulated mm -hmm. in a, 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 a wide field, you know, uh, Walker Art Centre, MoMA, I mean, you know, the work was always in those spaces. But we were always very conscious of the fact that what drives the practice is the political economy. And the political economy was tied to television, to the independent sectors and the trade unions in this country, to television. Um, so what we decided was to change that, was to sever that link, you know, uh, with subsidy, uh, the good banking foundations and the arts councils and so on, and, and, and television, because we wanted to rethink how to position, position what we did. So it's a good question, uh, both norm and practice, you know. Um, I'm going to just ask if there's any any other questions out there. You tell me to shut up as well. <laughs> Silent. It looks like we can carry on. Okay. So 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 that takes me then to from what you've just said to go back, and perhaps this is more about terminology than it is about practice, but. To go back to that thing that you said earlier then about not being interested in art. Mm. Mm. And so my question is, is, it a, is that what your thoughts were then and, have those, and has that changed now? No. Um, I mean, I'm still... Uh, as concerned with the processes as I am with the naming of it. I, the naming's never seemed that interesting, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, to all intents and purposes, what we um, do, Lena, Trevor, David and myself, uh, hasn't really changed that much. The, our economic relations to outside forces have, but pretty much the same thing happens now as, as it did 
you know, uh, then, then the questions that you want to address keep multiplying. <laughs> so um, I'd like to put off the naming ceremony until we've, you know, it's like you're still trying to give birth to this thing and, yeah. and people are endlessly trying to call it something, you know. Uh, and I'm not, you know, filmmaker, artist, theorist, who cares? You know, not interesting for me. So one of the questions that I'm constantly being asked um, um, in relation to the 80s and that particular moment and coming out of that moment is, I'm oversimplifying the question, the question that is asked is, you know, has practice changed? Not necessarily my own practice, but generally, can we make a generalisation about the way that practice has changed amongst black artists in the UK? Um, and on the back of that, whether what we were trying to do then has been achieved. And I'm kind of linking back to Koyo's question about mm -hmm. the unrealised utopia. Um, good question. Uh, again, uh, yes, on one level, but uh, let me, let me, by way of a, um, a homily, arrive at this. So um, there's a, a cinematographer, theorist, American, African-American friend, mm -hmm. whose name is Arthur Jaffer, AJ. AJ, myself, uh, and the African-American writer, Greg Tate, a whole bunch of people on both sides of the Atlantic had been worrying the same thing ever since we met in the 80s. You know, what is the language of black cinema? What form should it take? Blah, 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 blah. And um, we were at MIT five months ago. And we started a debate on it, and it just didn't feel right anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, nah. That's done. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just do it and you have to move on. I mean, you know, the discussion about black cinema in the wake of Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave, in the wake of a whole Nollywood explosion in a way, just felt old, you know? So quietly, we, we all just sort of dropped it. <laughs> and continued with the more interesting things for us, which is, you know, what our individual practices were now, you know. Um, I mean, of course, the concerns and uh, ambitions and practices of the black art world in the 80s is realised. I mean, you know, um, you know when I realised it was done? The yeah. first show uh, that Chris Ophelia did group show that he did when Sensation went to, to the States. Yes. Yeah. So I walk on a snowy night to Brooklyn to watch the show and there were police vans everywhere. <laughs> and you couldn't work out whether they were guarding the piece or trying to stop it from being... <laughs> anyway, I looked and I thought, well, yeah, done. <laughs> it's done. I mean, the idea that... The, <laughs> An artist of colour from here would be both called celeb and the very uh, raison d'etre of sensation, the show itself, would have been unthinkable a decade before. Yeah, so 
I, I mean, I don't see how we can't not have succeeded. Mm. <laughs> you know, if you have a world in which, you know, in Black October month, there's Steve at Thomas Dane. Black October. Black October, sorry. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not even a question anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, the idea that in one month, this year, you'd have what it took a decade of national institutions to put on a black artist in one month? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Shit's changed. <laughs> Quite what it means is up to all of us to decide, but yeah, shit's changed. Uh. Okay. Come on, you must have a question. I'm going to give you another chance now, audience, <laughs> to... Uh, to, to ask a question. Hi, my name is, can you hear me? My name is Michelle John Wilkinson. I'm a curator in the States. And we have, February is our Blacktober over there. And I'm mm. wondering if the, the amount of artists exhibiting right now is because it is October, is that something that you would find in your February or in your March? I'll respond to this by saying, I think one of the reasons that we have uh, such a glut of, of, um, of um, well-known um, black artists showing in London at the moment is because of freeze rather than because of October. So we're being a little bit uh, facetious there about the whole Blacktober thing. I mean, there is an there is an ongoing issue here in the in in the United Kingdom about October being the month where um, cultural institutions across a pe the piece will suddenly remember that they have black audiences and black aud and, and uh, black artists. But I have to say that I think that the, the, you know, the reason that you know Thomas Dane and uh, uh, you know Delphina and everybody is showing work this is is much more to do with freeze than it is to do with with Black History. But they also say it's black. It's our Black History Month too. Yeah, October. So um, synergy, probably. You know, the in terms of the differences as well. Um, it's worth maybe again another uh, analogy. This is my good friend Zach Ove sitting in front here, and and Zach's father was an even bigger friend of mine. <laughs> and Zach's father was Horace Ove, who was a great, great, still is, uh, but isn't practicing quite as much anymore. Um, filmmaker, photographer, uh, cultural activist. I don't think Zach and his dad do anything different. <laughs> Zach makes films, he takes photographs, he makes artworks. Um, but I think it's fair to say, Zach, that you will probably see a bit more dosh <laughs> in your lifetime. Yeah, one would hope. You know? Yeah. And we've, we have to mark that difference, you know, uh, for what it means. You have to kind of mark that difference. I, I think do it's remember that uh, in 82, one of the things that Rashi did say in his seminal paper on black art and art and black consciousness was that I'm going to misquote him. Uh, he said that in my lifetime, I will not see a black artist win the Turner Prize. I do remember, and it's kind of in you know, it's there in the in the the archive that he that he said that. So so you know, one has to acknowledge that that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, but there you is some be, You don't want to be triumphalist about it, you know, because the, the I mean, I, I mean, I would love to take credit for all of this, I mean, as a sector. Uh, but I think that closes off some very, very complicated transformations that yeah, are taking place. You're right in that sense. I mean, the two things are night and day by mm. comparison. Mm. I mean, mm. if, if we think where we began and now sitting here, I mean, it really is a different experience. Fuck yeah. um, I would say also, though, that I think obviously now we're facing sort of modern times of modern entrapments mm. of the sorts that mm. probably didn't exist mm. in similar ways. Mm. So, mm. Um, mm. I mean, I think it's fascinating when you were talking about the evolution between Black Audio Film Collective and Smoking Dogs, mm. where your work has grown out to, mm. and how you see what you're allowed now, yeah. right? Yeah. In a way that you weren't literally within the kind of parameters of where this began. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. But, I mean, um, one of the, the things that I'm always... In, in my sort of lighter moments, I'm very Nietzschean. <laughs> and I see eternal recurrences <laughs> everywhere. You know, not necessarily always good, but some of them not bad to register, actually. So for this weekend, um, I had a stack of our Sundays, and I'm going through The Observer, because I hadn't read it for a month. I was working on the film, and I, I thought... Um, and there was... Uh, you know that Observer column section where they reproduce stuff? from the past. There's this piece on Wally Shoinka from 65. Right. Um, he'd written the play, the play was going to the Royal Court, uh, Joan Littlewood was going to do it, Joan Littlewood was this uh, our equivalent, for those of you uh, not familiar with her, our equivalent of uh, Lee Strasberg. You know, she was a sort of method diva in this country who run um, the Theatre Royal at the time. And then the language was one of transformation. Oh, look at this guy, he's going to do this, and it's going to change everything. And of course it does, for him. And does black theatre still have problems in this country? Yeah, are they the same problems as the ones Wale Shoinka encountered in 65? No, you know. Um, so you need to temper the triumphalist tone with something uh, which recognises the complexities. Uh, of transformation and why they're not always necessarily going up. You know, sometimes it just goes round and yeah. round again. <laughs> the question to us in Edgar then is really what, where do you see your journey going next um, and how do you see the future in you, terms of what yeah. you're working towards yeah. and the construct of that and how it. I've never, you know, uh, uh, it's not arrogance, it's not, I've never ever worried about that. I tell you, the, the thing that gives me nightmares, quite literally, Zach, okay, uh, is the fear that I might wake up one day and not have anything I want to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is really like the key thing, the sense that the, the space of um, reflection, uh, the space uh, in which things acquire an urgency in my head that then says, okay, they need to move from the cerebral into something that you, you know, that, that somehow those mechanisms and machineries 
will stop functioning. Or I'd wake up one day and think, dude, you've done it. Go to bed. <laughs> that frightens me more than, than actually where I'm going. Because once, once there is something to engage, then I know it will go somewhere. <laughs> you know? I'm used to so little to survive, historically, because you had to be, that as long as I can, I've got something um, to preoccupy me, I'm kind of happy. So that's, it's a more existential answer to your question, but honestly, that's sort of where it's at for, for me. Yeah. You know? I think the other interesting thing to come back to quickly was that for you guys, when you were talking about the, the gallery experience in the mm. context earlier, right, as, 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 as almost like a, a fracas, it's like you, they make films for galleries, yes. right? And, and the divide line of that, I think what's interesting is how kind of full circle, full arc, is how you're able now to walk back into that arena mm. as a mm. filmmaker slash artist mm. that no longer is kind of kept within the goalposts of or what define kind of classical filmmaking in that event. Mm. And how the gallery is now the utopia for a, a black voice in a way that it wasn't essentially when those insults were being thrown back at you. you know? Yeah, but you see, that's what I'm saying. I don't, this is a, a, a debate that we, Marlene and I have, I have had over and over and over again, you know, like almost everybody in the room that day, sorry, that weekend mm -hmm. in 82, has gone on this incredible journey, you know. I, I almost cried uh, in, du sorry, Sharjah, next to Dubai. Not actually Dubai, but it's <laughs> close. Um, beginning of, end of last year, because I got there uh, to speak to them about something, and there was... Rashid Rashid's show. Yeah, yeah. You know, this show that he had been so... <laughs> singularly denied for so long and suddenly there it was the entire reach ambition it almost made me cry there it was you know the same with just about everybody in that room you know the kind of vicissitudes and transformations have been quite remarkable i don't know anyone i mean in a way as an answer um i don't know anyone who was there that day uh, why do I keep saying day? It's a weekend. No, it was a day. Um, right, it was a day. Was it? Mm -hmm. It was a day. It was a day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I can say with confidence, I don't know anyone who was there on that day felt one that it was a waste of time. But crucially, anyone who saw it as a moment of the prophetic. Yeah. But of course, that's what it's become for all of us. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like many things announced in that room then became... Yeah, so I don't know if Black Audio Film Collective was announced in that room, but it certainly became or was becoming. Oh, I don't know, certainly Black Art Gallery was announced and, and became, so, so, so it, was, it, was a, it was a, you know, it, it, it definitely was a seminal moment. I am really yeah, conscious, yeah, I am really conscious that we've, we've yeah. Mm. Well, my name is Nana Dusepoku. Hello. Um, and I have, um, I'm a bit, I want to challenge this notion of like we have reached that point, like we arrived and everything. It sounds too positive to me because as an ed educator 
in an art institution I encounter, or I do a lot of studio visits with black young students um, from Europe, and they're encountering the very same problems that you might have encountered in your educational moment. And I think it's quite crucial that you came together as students, mm. because that was the moment where you, most, where you were most exposed to a knowledge system that denied your position. Mm. And unfortunately, I have to say that within, if you look at art institutions, apart from some enclaves and you know, some specialized programs, still, the same canon is still reproduced over and over again. So my question is basically, what can we do now within, I mean, okay, I'm working on a curriculum, I'm trying to implement something that, you know, they have no idea about, but then there is also no expertise in-house that could teach about black art, mm -hmm. could teach about that specific moment. So there's a sort of certain kind of a temporal disjuncture that has been produced. On the one hand, Black artists are affirmed, there's a fair, there's like there are galleries, there's like a market, etc., that embraces the, you know, like the aesthetic productions. But then on the other hand, the knowledge production within educational institutions remains the same. And I think that is really, really a great problem. Can can I I, I want to respond to that as well as well as you, John. I, I mean I, I do absolutely agree with you in that, um, in thinking through utopia, um, one of the many things that needs to happen, and perhaps one of the most essential things that needs to happen, is that the canon does need to be addressed. And, and the establishment is not just the galleries, the contemporary spaces that will open their doors and show work. The, the establishment is also um, the museum, uh, and, you know, collections are really important in terms of legacy. Mm. The canon is also uh, the academy in terms of what is taught, what is documented. Uh, and, I, and I agree with you that that certainly in the UK, I think, and this is, again is debatable that the US does a little better than we do over here. Uh, but certainly in terms of the UK, that, that, is, that you, do, you do not see the work being taught and being brought into the, into the um, institutions. And I can only say that there are a number of research projects that are trying to, to address that specifically. And I mean, I can't, I can't say more than that at the moment, but, I'm, but, but, I'm, but, I, but that is part of the ongoing work that, that, that a number of people are. Are doing. I don't know if you want to add to that. Um, yes and, and no. I, I, I absolutely agree with everything Nana said. My thing is, though, um, I, I would come at it a slightly different way because uh, uh, I was powerfully reminded of what distinguished us from our forebears and, and probably people now when. I went to get an honorary doctorate from, from the university um, this year and I met quite a few of the retired old codgers and lectures <laughs> and um, in my head we were these obedient students who engaged them and, uh, they, and that's not their recollection at all. Their, their thing was that we were this outlaw band, you know, refuseniks who were uh, 
on the outskirts of of the curriculum, the departments, forming our own little groups in the interstices between departments, which is true, because Trevor was in the art department, I was in the cultural studies department, we had people in psychology, literature, you know, so the, the coming of our conviviality and collegiality, uh, arose out of the fact that we were working outside of the established structures in many ways. What I think it is true to, to say is that the, the techniques of ecstasy, to use a phrase from a book I love a lot, that became uh, our default setting, uh, arose out of that intense engagement with the academy. It would not have happened without that, you know, uh, because uh, what most of us had done before we got there was to have read the black stuff. And some of, if you come from socialist families, as I did, you would have read some of the leftist stuff. But, you know, the first time I read uh, Althusser's um, essay on ideology, I was blown away. I mean, your first encounter with Derrida is just the most fabulous thing, <laughs> you know, you think, man, that guy's a Negro, <laughs> you know, there's just these weird um, recognitions that you make and affirmations of, of things that, that comes only via encountering, you know, the academy. So if you feel as if that space is dwindling in its significance to, pe to, to emerging artists, that would be a pity, in my view, that would be a shame. I am going to have to, I'm really sorry to do this, I'm going to have to, to, to wrap up um, this session. Um, I want to thank Jana Comfra. Uh, and I want to thank you for coming, and I especially want to thank Koyo for inviting us to have this yes. conversation. Thank you, Koyo. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.